0: Good afternoon, and welcome to the Cato Institute for our policy forum, should, the, should Government Deliver Comparative Effectiveness Research, or Can It? What is comparative effectiveness research? Why did the recent economic stimulus package dedicate $1, bi, $1 billion taxpayer dollars to it? And why did it, such a relatively tiny portion of that $787 billion package generate so much concern among healthcare providers and so much outrage among conservatives? The answers to these questions could influence the direction of health, the health care reforms that President Obama has gathered uh, experts to discuss this week and could influence the ability of American patients to make decisions about their own medical care. So to help us answer these questions, we have with us today Shannon Brownlee, a visiting scholar at the National Institutes of Health Clinical Center in their Department of Bioethics. Uh, Ms. Brownlee is also a senior fellow at the New America Foundation and the author of Overtreated, Why Too Much Medicine is Making Us Sicker and Poorer. Dr. Scott Gottlieb, a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, who's also a former deputy commissioner for medical and scientific affairs at the FDA, and was a senior policy advisor at the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Ms. Brownlee will speak to you first, followed by uh, Dr. Gottlieb. My name is Michael Cannon, and I'm the director of health policy studies here at the Cato Institute. I'll follow Dr. Gottlieb with my thoughts on this important area in health care reform. Now, after our panelists make our presentations, we're going to open the uh, floor to questions from the audience. And following the forum, I want to invite all of you to join us upstairs for a luncheon reception in our winter garden. And with that, I will turn things over to Shannon Brownlee. Shannon?
1: So do we have some um, slides set up?
0: She, yeah, if you could um, bring down the screen so we can set up the PowerPoint. The, your
1: presentation is already here. right here. Great. So being a technical illiterate, uh, what do I do? Forward. This is forward.
2: Am I going to be in the way? Okay.
1: I don't think so. It is um, and I'm not going to have very many slides. Okay. Forward.
0: Here, maybe I can do it.
1: So, how do I put them onto the screen?
0: Well, the big contraption is still lowering. It's ah. The okay.
1: Um, I might as well start then. Um, Michael, thank you very much for inviting me to this um, forum. This should be very interesting. Um, uh, A little bit, I just wanted to uh, make a couple of things clear. I'm a visiting scholar at the NIH, but my views are my own. They don't represent views of the NIH, and um, I have no financial uh, conflicts of interest to disclose. So medicine is filled with uncertainty. Uh, The Institute of Medicine estimates that only about 50% of what physicians do is actually backed up by valid evidence, and valid means it's likely to be true. So what about the rest of what physicians are doing? Um, Some of it is perfectly good medicine. You don't need to have a randomized controlled trial to show that morphine is an effective pain healer, pain reliever, or that setting bones um, leads to better outcomes than not setting them. But a great deal of that 50% that is not backed up by valid evidence is based in tradition, theory, marketing, idiosyncratic practice patterns, and what's profitable for hospitals and physicians. In other words, there's a great deal of uncertainty, and this uncertainty cuts across all aspects of healthcare. care. Um, a lot of people make the mistake of thinking that comparative effectiveness is only about drugs and maybe devices that you do head-to-head trials. But the reality is um, the evidence for drugs is actually better than it is for a lot of other aspects of medicine. So um, I wanted to show you a slide that I don't expect you to read, but you may not be able to see it if we don't get the machinery going. So I'll, I'll tell you what's on the slide. It's a, it's a very uh, short list, long list on the slide, but it's actually a short list of um, some of the areas of medicine, some of the treatments and tests and drugs and surgeries that we don't know whether or not they're actually effective. And I'll just give you a few examples. Um, PSA test to screen for prostate cancer, we don't know if it reduces mortality or not. Um, TPA for stroke. We've had a, a few randomized trials. They're of very poor quality. There are some real problems. Uh, we don't know whether or not this drug actually improves outcomes or not. CT angiography, screening for um, coronary artery disease. Uh, uh, statins for primary prevention. Uh, using a bronchoscope for all sorts of things. Virtual colonoscopy for cancer screening is still a little bit up in the air. The D-dimer test, um, Uh, I could go on spinal fusion for low back pain. So drugs, tests, devices, surgeries, all areas of medicine, there are uncertainties about what is the best way to treat patients. Um, So sometimes uh, we have no idea if an intervention actually benefits patients. Uh, Radiation treatment for prostate cancer, I think there are five different modalities, and if you ask urologists which one is best, they'll say we have no idea. And then if you ask them if there's evidence that they any of them actually reduce mortality, they'll say, we don't really know. Um, uh, even more problematic, we have very little me- evidence about care pathways. So is it better to do a gallbladder removal on a patient whose acute gallbladder attack has been managed medically in order to prevent future attacks, or is it better to wait and do it only when they have an attack? Um, Does intensive care management of congestive heart failure result in better outcomes, lower mortality, less need for hospitalization? We don't know that either. Um, So we have a lot of assumptions. Great. We have a lot of assumptions about how to treat disease. This is the partial list of some of the treatments and what they're for uh, and some of the tests and what they're for that are very uncertain. Um, So... We have a lot of assumptions about how to treat disease, but we're really light on evidence in a lot of cases. And this lack of evidence has really profound implications for patients. So many patients are not receiving care that could benefit them because the evidence is unclear, and other patients are getting treatments that are adding nothing to their health because the evidence is unclear and it is putting them at risk. So we can see that there's tremendous variability in the delivery of care in different parts of the country and i 'm just going to show you a couple of examples um, so this is this is This is the variation in rates of spine surgery, spinal fusion. Um, or it might be all spine surgery for low back pain in different parts of the country. And it, it's, um, it, each of the colors represents the ratio to the national average, and there is a f- more than fourfold variation in per capita rates of spine surgery, and this is all among Medicare patients. Now, is this because there are that many more patients in the West and parts of Texas than in the East who need spine surgery? No, we don't think that there are differences, major differences in the patient population. The difference is that there are more aggressive spine surgeons in certain parts of the country. So there are more aggressive spine surgeons in Bend, Oregon than Bangor, Maine, and that's why there's four times more spine surgery. Um, This is the variation for endovascular uh, aortic aneurysm repair. Compared to the US average, and you see there's enormous variation. Each of these colors represents um, the, the dark blue, and the dark green are, uh, there's a fourfold variation there. And so, and you don't see more aortic aneurysm repair in Baltimore because they're in, than in Bakersfield, California, for example, because there are that many more people who need repair in, in Baltimore. It's because you have an emor- enormous range of physician opinion about what to do about it, about whether this new technique is better than open repair, about when you apply it to patients. So the question is, which rate of aortic aneurysm repair is right? Which rate of spine surgery is right? Um, It could be that the patients in Baltimore getting aortic aneurysm repair are being over treated. Or it could be that the patients in Bakersfield are being undertreated. They're not getting a procedure that they could use. But we don't know because we haven't done the studies. So it is physician preference that ends up determining what's happening. And this general lack of information about which procedures are effective, along with more basic evidence about when to hospitalize patients, for example, when to call in an infectious disease specialist, when your patient is coughing or has a fever, when to put your patient in the ICU unit, um, we see this enormous variation in how intensely we treat very similar patients. So. This is the variation across the country in, um, in how much Medicare spends per beneficiary in different parts of the country. And there is a 2.5-fold variation. So patients in Los Angeles are getting 2.5 times more care than patients in Portland, Oregon. And the bottom line is that what these data tell us, and these are all from the Dartmouth Atlas, the bottom line is these data show us that we are spending about 600 to $800 billion a year on unnecessary care. And that's because physicians don't know exactly what works in medicine, what doesn't work, and for which patients. Now, it would be foolish to imagine that the price tag for this care or the care itself is benign, this unnecessary care. Um, it entails the, all the risks of medical treatment without, uh, which are substantial without offering the benefit. So you're going to hear from adversaries of comparative effectiveness research that clinical trials can't tell the doctor what's right for the individual patient. And we all want personalized medicine, care that is perfectly tailored for our personal bodies. Um, But we're not there yet, and we probably won't be there for a very long time. (laughs) Clinical trials can only tell you as an individual what the trade-offs are and what the chances are that one thing will happen versus another. They can't guarantee a particular outcome. But neither can guesswork, which is what's going on right now, which is what physicians are doing a lot of the time. So patients don't want excess care, but they also don't want too little care. And the problem is doctors don't yet know what the right care is. So why do we have to have federal funding for this research that's so necessary? Um, we spend $30 billion on the NIH. The drug industry spends another $30 billion on R&D, and some fraction of that is actually aimed at determining defi- efficacy. So why is there so much uncertainty if we're spending all this money? And it's because we're not doing the research that we really need. Um, it turns out that the NIH spends only a tiny fraction of that $30 billion on research that actually looks at what works in medicine. Uh, As a former director of the NIH once put it, we don't do Coke versus Pepsi. Um... There is a great deal of clinical research that's done. That's research that involves human subjects, but about 80% of it is underwritten by the drug industry. And the drug industry doesn't care if vena cava filters actually work. And the drug industry doesn't care if PSA testing actually reduces mortality. And its shareholders have absolutely no interest in knowing if spinal fusion is more effective than less invasive treatments for low back pain. And nor should they. That's not their job. Their job is to sell drugs. So the federal government is, in fact, really the only place to look for this kind of research. It's a public good. This research is a public good, and the marketplace has not and probably cannot provide it. Um, There is another reason to look to public institutions for this kind of research, Um, and this is the problem of bias, The other reason we need federal research is because many of the clinical studies that are being funded by the drug industry represent very poor science. They're biased by design, by conduct, by analysis, and how they are written up. And many, if not most, physicians are unable to tell the difference between a good study and a bad study. So what are the arguments against comparative effectiveness research? Um, Some of the arguments you will hear is it will lead to cookbook medicine. And when people say this, I can only imagine that they don't really have much of an appreciation for the history of medicine, uh, including very recent history. So if you think about bloodletting and frontal lobotomy and bone marrow transplant for breast cancer, um, all of which are, were once wildly popular and are now no longer used, they have been discredited. Part of what discredited them was good science. Um, and... If you think about things like lumpectomy for breast cancer, it was not adopted by breast surgeons until a federally funded study actually showed it was just as, as effective as mastectomy. So argument number two, the federal government can't do anything right. Uh, in fact, it was the federal government that funded the study that showed that bone marrow transplant for breast cancer was no more effective than standard therapy. Uh, It was the federal government that funded the study of lumpectomy and mastectomy. The federal government does a lot of, funds a lot of very, very good research. Um, And finally, it will lead to rationing. Um, And I think this is fear-mongering. So these are some of the things that have come out recently, saying that comparative effectiveness research is... uh, is going to lead to rationing, that the, basically that the federal government is going to pay for studies and bias the studies in such a way that the cheap stuff is always going to come out on top. Now the drug and device industries want us to think this. Um, they want us to think that federal funding of comparative effectiveness research is going to uh, produce results that are biased towards cheap products. And they are worried, and rightly so, because a lot of their brand-name products are no better than the cheaper alternatives. Now, some brand-name products are way better than the cheaper alternative, but others aren't, or they simply have different sets of side effects, or are they only slightly superior, but they are getting a premium price. So these companies recognize that once there are valid studies, marketing is it's going to be a lot harder to use marketing to keep your sales up. Um, So my point is that there are two fundamentally separate arguments here. One is whether the federal government should be in the business of doing comparative effectiveness research. And this is a different question from whether or not um, the government should be doing cost-effectiveness research. Um, And we can talk about the issue of cost-effectiveness here, but it really is a separate issue from comparative effectiveness And saving money is not the only reason for us to do comparative effectiveness research. The first order of business is to find out what actually works in medicine, what doesn't work in medicine, and for which patients. And we can't get those data doing things the way we are now, or at least we can't get it fast enough or enough of it. So the $1.1 billion in the stimulus package is, is effectively a down payment on the infrastructure that's needed if we want medicine that's going to be based in science rather than theory and belief and we need to do this research if we want to bring the american if we want to bring american medicine into the 21st century thanks
2: Thanks a lot. I was uh, just um, n- noting to Shen that she took my name off the slide, uh, the fear-mongering slide, and substituted in Wall Street Journal. So <laughs> it was probably a last-minute uh, substitution and very courteous. So I appreciate Good
1: sign. it. You remember, you remember <laughs> your own
2: writing. I remember my yeah. quotes. Yes. Um, I, I just want to talk briefly about um, some of the clinical issues here and some of the issues related to the research itself. When I look at the proposals, and we have some proposals now that we can look at, uh, the Baucus-Conrad bill, which is built into the budget and will be reintroduced uh, after April, as well as what's put into the House uh, stimulus language, we have some fairly fleshed out proposals uh, in terms of what uh, folks here in Washington want to do when it comes to comparative effectiveness. So. I'm looking at that when I'm trying to glean what this will eventually evolve into. And it leads me to two questions that I think are unresolved right now. What is the it? What are we talking about here? Are we talking about a new agency, a new federal entity, or a program designed to try to do research, to plug uh, clinical questions, to do comparative studies in places where we don't have a lot of research, to guide clinical decision-making, guide choices doctors are confronted with? Are we talking about a body that will become a decision-making body that will become prescriptive or will become an authority uh, whose whose decisions will be binding, whether it's in Medicare or the private programs. Those are two very different constructs. And if you take folks at their word, if you listen to the folks who've helped craft the legislation, uh, they talk about just developing an agency to develop that kind of clinical evidence and not necessarily a prescriptive agency. But I have my doubts about what it will eventually become. And I have my doubts because of the other question, which is the how. So there's two questions. The it, what is this going to be? And the how, which is how is it going to go about doing its, its work? And it's the how that leads me to um, be concerned about what this will eventually look like and what it will evolve into. And that's where I want to start um, my remarks today. It's without a doubt that there are a lot of uh, gaps in our medical knowledge. I still practice medicine. I confront gaps in terms of decision-making every single time I go into the hospital. I confront gaps Uh, Related to comparative questions. Oftentimes those comparative questions are not necessarily technology versus technology questions. Most often they have to do with approaches to care. When to intervene, when to escalate therapy, uh, when to get more aggressive in terms of how you're approaching the patient. For the most part, and this isn't universally true, the technology versus technology questions are easier to sort out. I don't need a randomized head-to-head prospective study to help me decide whether or not to prescribe Lipitor or Zocor. I could figure that out. Uh, Zocor is a pretty good drug. I'm on it myself, and it's going to work for most patients, and it's, it's very inexpensive relative to Lipitor. What I do need is studies to help guide when to approach the patient differently, when to intervene with more aggressive uh, treatments. Now, that's not to say that there aren't important comparative clinical questions that are of a head-to-head nature, where there's competing technologies and there's just no good answer, what's the right approach? And And in many cases, you have different price tags assigned to those competing technologies. But when you look at those questions and you listen to very thoughtful people like Gail Walensky and Sean Tunus who are proponents of comparative effectiveness research, the kinds of examples they cite in terms of where they think there are comparative questions that need to be resolved by research where the government can play an important role. They cite, for example, breast cancer where in certain settings of breast cancer there are multiple chemotherapy regimens without very clear data which one actually provides better outcomes. Or they cite prostate cancer, where there are a lot of competing modalities in terms of how to approach the prostate cancer patient, including watchful waiting, without a lot of head-to-head comparisons to try to discern what is the right approach for the right patient. Or they cite back surgery, when to take a patient who has chronic lower back pain and intervene with various procedures that are invasive these are the examples they point to, and I think rightly so, because these are truly uh, gaps in our knowledge as physicians, and you see a lot of heterogeneity, a lot of variety in terms of how physicians approach these kinds of patients. Now, when we're talking about the how, how will this new center do its work, these are the examples that the thoughtful proponents of comparative effectiveness research cite. So how do we help uh, resolve these questions? Well, it's not going to be through systematic reviews, which is basically a process that looks systematically at the available uh, evidence. It's not going to be through some kind of retrospective look at available data. It's not even going to be through some kind of big registry where you, where you assign all the patients to different treatments and just follow them prospectively, but you don't randomize them to different treatment groups. The reason why these kinds of clinical questions... Uh, persist in perpetuity is because they're hard to answer. They require very rigorous, prospective, large clinical trials where you not only randomize patients to different treatment groups, but you need to follow them for a very long period of time. And so to resolve these kinds of questions, that in fact is what we're going to have to do. Now there's a model for this. Uh, There's examples where the federal government has done this. Um, Shannon cited the studies looking at Um, high-dose chemotherapy followed by bone marrow transplant in patients with breast cancer, where the private payers came together and said, probably around 10 years ago now, we're not going to pay for this procedure anymore unless patients are enrolled in clinical trials. And they enrolled patients in clinical trials rigorous, randomized, prospective clinical trials and found out after a number of years that patients weren't doing well. In fact, patients who opted for the high dose chemotherapy followed by bone marrow transplant actually died uh, at a higher rate than patients who who went with conventional therapy. There are other examples, more recent examples, where the Federal Government has played a role in doing these kinds of doing this kind of research, plugging these knowledge gaps. Uh, Katie. Uh, Katie was a study sponsored by the NIH, which looked at different uh, antipsychotic medications and randomized patients to different treatment groups, some of whom got newer, more expensive, what so-called atypical antipsychotics, and some of whom got older drugs. Another example is AllHat, another study sponsored by the NIH that randomized patients to different treatments for hypertension and uh, high cholesterol to try to discern what were the right approaches for treating patients with high blood pressure. Now, when you look at Katie and All Hat, I think they were good studies. We learned something from them. There's a role for the federal government to do that kind of research because these are very large studies. They involve a lot of cooperation among sponsors. They're hard for the private market to do in many cases because they've involved so many different actors that all have to come together and collaborate. And they're also very expensive. Uh, Katie costs around $70 million. All Hat costs around $130 million. But when you look at the results of those trials, the reality is that despite the fact that they were good studies, um, we didn't learn everything we thought we would learn. And in fact, not a single label change has been made to any of the drugs involved in those studies by the Food and Drug Administration, with the exception, or not a single efficacy label change, with the exception of a class claim on hypertension medications that says that if you treat blood pressure um, to goal, it reduces people's cardiovascular risk. Probably something we could have concluded earlier but all had gave the agency the confidence to put class labeling on hypertension medication. And so why is that? That is because resolving these kinds of comparative clinical questions is very hard. It's rarely the case, when you look through medical history, that a a difficult comparative clinical question has been resolved with a single study. Bone marrow transplant might be one of the exceptions. Uh, It was a well-done study. Um, But there are a few exceptions. There are a few of those examples. If you look at some other uh, important clinical comparative questions that have been resolved by medicine, uh, it took multiple studies. So, another example is primary angioplasty, where you thread a catheter into a patient who's having a heart attack or so called acute carne syndrome to open their blocked artery versus drugs called lytics that also could open the artery. There was a lot of debate back in the 90s what was the right approach for the patient showing up to the emergency room uh, with an ongoing heart attack, whether they went to what's called primary angioplasty or you used the drugs called lytics. That was resolved eventually. It was resolved through multiple studies. And so why is this important? Why is it important to go back and look at how clinical comparative questions have been resolved uh, over the course of even recent medical history? I think it's important because it gets at the question of the it. What is this going to be? If we are purists and we take folks at their word and we believe um, that the goal here is to try to develop clinical information that's going to guide decision-making and plug some of these evidentiary gaps, we're going to need something fairly well-funded, fairly robust, that does work that's fairly rigorous. Uh, The history of, you know, clinical medicine has shown that anything short of that really isn't going to resolve these difficult questions. You're not going to be able to do a systematic review to resolve the question of what's the right chemotherapeutic approach for breast cancer patients. If it was that easy, we'd have the answer already. And in fact, there's been a lot of systematic reviews looking at that question that have basically tried to amalgamate the existing evidence, and the existing evidence isn't good enough to really make a definitive conclusion. What you need isn't Uh, decision-making body, you need new knowledge in those kinds of questions. You need the definitive research that's going to tip the balance uh, on people's thought process around these questions. But the reality is when you look at what's being developed in legislation, it's not that process. It's something very different. They talk about doing systematic reviews. They talk about doing retrospective looks at epidemiological data. They don't even fund it to how you think it should be funded if your goal is to do these rigorous studies. After all, Katie and Allhat cost a combined $200 million, and this is funded to the tune of $1.1 billion, but less than that because it's split up many ways. So if you really wanted to do these rigorous studies, you're not going to get a whole lot of bang for your buck with how it's funded right now. So that leads me back to my question of the it. What is it? And I think it's fair to conclude, I think the only conclusion you can make, is it's not going to be doing a lot of that new knowledge generation. It's going to be doing a lot of synthesizing existing information uh, and trying to develop authoritative, definitive conclusions from that information that, in this case, have the infrastructure of the government. Uh, and hopefully will in people who believe this is a cost containment tool, will rule the day in terms of what Medicare does and what the private market does. I think it's debatable whether it can even succeed at that goal. Uh, ARC, after all, has put out systematic reviews for years and and reached conclusions in many of them that were fairly definitive in terms of their pronouncements but haven't really impacted clinical practice, in part because I think what the government does probably needs to be even more pure than what the private market does, not less uh, because there's a natural inclination to distrust what comes out of the government among, among private actors. Um, but regardless of that discussion, whether or not this can actually change minds, it's, it's hard to believe that there's going to be a whole lot of new knowledge generation here. Um, and instead, it becomes rather easy to believe when you look at the architecture, you look at the way this is constructed, the way it's funded, the way these questions have historically been resolved, that what it is is, is a, it's a synthesizing tool. It's a way to create a government agency that's going to synthesize existing information and put out more definitive declarations than what private actors are doing now. Now, as an exercise, um, I think this is wholly uh, unnecessary. And I think it's unnecessary because I think a lot of this work already goes on in places that probably are better equipped to do it uh, and probably have more independent stature than what any new agency is going to have. And I think we could do much more to be leveraging those groups. People talk about the fact that there is no place to go. I'm up on the hill and I talk to staffers about comparative effectiveness and they say, but there's no place to go to get an answer to this question. That's not true. There's plenty of places to go that are authoritative to get an answer to these questions. You might not like the answers. um, You might not even like the places, but they're there. You can go to medical professional groups and look at their practice guidelines. They all explore uh, comparative clinical questions in the context of their practice guidelines and issue recommendations on what the right approach is. Uh, You can go to the Cochrane group. You can even go to the NCI and go to their website if you if you're looking for a comparative question in cancer and query the NCI's website. And sure enough they issue recommendations on how to approach particular medical problems based on their synthesis of the available information. Now, the argument goes that these groups then can't be trusted. Uh, The medical professional societies are hopelessly corrupted uh, by the influences of of organized marketing uh, and their proximity to the industry. Well, there's ways to address that if that's your concern. You can certainly see um, a construct where these professional groups, these other independent groups, would adhere to voluntary guidelines on transparency, on conflict of interest, on disclosure rules, for purposes of having their guidelines become part of the decision-making process inside things like the Medicare program. And, in fact, there's precedent for this, where the NCCN, the cancer guidelines put out by the NCCN, are... Part of Medicare's decision-making process, and in fact, the IOM, the Institute of Medicine, has talked about developing voluntary standards for conflict of interest and disclosure and transparency that the medical practice groups could adhere to for purposes of allowing their uh, guidelines to be incorporated into uh, um, into decision-making inside Medicare, if what we want is an authoritative statement uh, that answers these questions, which it seems to be that that is the it, that that, that, that is the it in this legislation, because the how um, is so hopelessly complex if we were to try to do what folks say they want to do, which is uh, just develop new knowledge. Um, I want to just close on a couple of thoughts on other things I think we can do uh, to try to plug these gaps in knowledge. Uh, and fully acknowledging that they do exist, and they not only exist in the examples that Sean and, and Gail use uh, in their uh, prepared talks, but they exist in ordinary medical practice. I think there is a place for original research, for NIH to get involved in sponsoring rigorous studies where these things are persist hopelessly in per- perpetuity, the example of the, prostate, uh, the approach to prostate cancer or the chemotherapy for breast cancer. Um, I think there is a place to leverage what's going on in the private sector among practice groups, practice guidelines, who are far more expert in exploring these questions than anything we're going to constitute here in Washington. I mean, even if we import the entire faculty of the Harvard School of Public Health, which seems to be where we're heading, into Washington, it's hard to believe that they're going to be more expert than some of these uh, professional societies um, are doing already. I'm not uh, naive, though, enough to think that we're not heading in a direction where uh, cms isn 't going to be arbitrating more clinical decisions in the context of his coverage choices, so I think that it, it coupled to this discussion around CER, I think we also need to think about how we leverage that, pro- how we discipline that process to make sure that it 's clinically rigorous and One way I think we do that and something i 've talked about since I was at CMS, is having an open external advisory committee structure for CMS, where there are therapeutically focused advisory committees that CMS needs to bring its coverage decisions before for an up-down vote, much like the FDA advisory committee process. This would provide clinical discipline. It would force CMS to have to defend their decision-making and their rationale publicly. Um, It would provide much greater transparency around how they reach decisions around uh, coverage than they currently have. So, as we move in the direction of empowering a new government agency to uh, reach conclusions that will then become a, a, a sort of binding uh, coverage decision inside CMS, I think providing that uh, external discipline, that clinical discipline to that process, I think is going to be extremely important. And finally, uh, and, and the last thought, um, Shannon talked about um, the lack of comparative evidence done by the drug companies or, or the medical device companies, and I'll use drug companies as an example because it's easier to talk about, um, there's good reason for that. Uh, if you are a drug company and you want to get a superiority claim into a drug label, if you are uh, Pfizer and you want to be able to claim that Lipitor is better than Zocor, you need to do, to satisfy the FDA, you need to do an exorbitantly large study. Uh, You not only need to enroll tens of thousands of patients, but you need to follow them for literally years, if not decades. And the reason is is that when you're comparing two active treatments, meaning two treatments that both work, and trying to find if one works a little better than another one, and then trying to find whether that little difference in how one works relative to another one actually yields a clinical impact on the patient, which is what you would need to do, it requires very rigorous research. And it's for that reason, frankly, that all Hat & Katie haven't yielded any label changes on any of those drugs because they just didn't reach FDA's high bar. Notwithstanding the fact that we spent $200 million federal dollars, they didn't reach FDA's high bar. So companies don't do these studies because they can't get into labels. And if they can't get into labels, they can't talk about it. So my very simple proposal, and, so, and if they do the studies and it doesn't get into the label and they talk about it, let's say, for example, they take the study to the State of Maryland's uh, Pharmacy and Therapeutics Committee, so a, a committee that makes decisions about what drugs the State of Maryland is going to put on formulary. If they bring that study to the State of Maryland, it's not on the drug label, they'll get a warning letter from FDA, and they'll be subject to Justice Department sanction. And I use that as an example because, in fact, one company brought something to the State of Maryland, and they got a warning letter from FDA, and they brought some comparative research that they had done. So I think as a public health matter, we could provide uh, some kind of environment where companies can do this research... Maybe it doesn't get into the label. Maybe they can't detail physicians with the results of the research or put it in an advertisement. But they certainly should be able to discuss it with Medicare. They should be able to discuss the results of this research with a pharmacy and therapeutics committee run by a big state. They should even be able to discuss it with United Healthcare. There's no reason why the FDA and the Justice Department should insinuate itself in that kind of a dialogue. After all, these are learned intermediaries that they're working with. These people are experts. They know how to read literature. Uh, And we're talking in most cases about fairly good research. doesn't meet FDA's high bar to get into labeling, but it's good studies nonetheless. And if it's not good studies, certainly the, the good folks at Medicare can ferret that out. So the idea that FDA maintains a restriction on what they can talk about, the dialogue they can have in those settings basically means none of this research gets done. And it would be very easy, as a matter of FDA's enforcement discretion, to put out a guidance document saying basically that we're not going to opine whether or not we have the legal authority to police what companies say to Medicare or to the state of Maryland's Pharmacy and Therapeutic Committee, but as a public health matter, we're going to say that we're going to exercise enforcement discretion and not police those discussions. I think if we had done that, or if we do that going forward, you'll see a lot more of this research getting done. Because after all, the environment for getting things on formulary is becoming much more competitive. Um, P&T committees are wise to the fact that there are cheap generic alternatives to a lot of expensive branded drugs, and they're, they're aggressively tiering those drugs. And so it's becoming much more incumbent upon these sponsors to bring in good research to justify decisions to continue to reimburse for the more expensive treatments. And so I think you'd see a lot more of this research getting done by the private sector. Thanks a lot.
0: Thank you, Scott and Shannon. I want to apologize, everyone, for my voice. It's not my usual policy forum voice that I have with me today, but I promise to stop talking uh, sooner as a result. Um, The debate that we've had so far over comparative effectiveness research, and it looks like the debate we're going to continue to have over it, is something... Of an absurdity. We have on one side the left saying that uh, the purpose of comparative effectiveness research is not to ration care, when clearly it is. The right is saying that comparative effectiveness research, federally funded comparative effectiveness research, will lead to government rationing of medical care, and it won't. And economists are telling us that economic theory says, well, you know, government should be providing comparative effectiveness research, when in fact economic theory does not tell us any such thing. So just to uh, uh, provide a little more elaboration on each of those observations, I'll start with uh, the left. Despite the claims that you'll see from some left-wing groups, there's one that said that comparative effectiveness research is not meant to ration care. It's to help patients make the right choice, which sounds kind of ominous if the government is the one uh, conducting the research and, and uh, using that research to inform reimbursement decisions. Um, it is, it's is—it's obvious that the purpose of comparative effectiveness research is to help ration medical care, to help choose between uh, low-value and high-value care, to help uh, patients and doctors, or to help decide when money will not be spent on medical care. And for proof, you only have to go, uh, you, you need to go no farther than the Congressional Budget Office, which has, uh, which has argued that this is a tool for helping to contain health care costs. Peter Orzag. Uh, uh, President Obama's uh, – Director of the Office of Management and Budget has made this point. Uh, President Obama's first pick for uh, Secretary of Health and Human Services, former Senator Tom Daschle, made, a, made this point in a book that he wrote where he argued that comparative effectiveness research, as he envisioned it, it would be used by a federal rationing board to help uh, uh, to decide what um, – uh, the federal government and even private payers would and would not spend money on. And he acknowledged that a lot of doctors and patients weren't, as well as uh, providers, were not going to like those decisions. And you can even look to the House committee uh, that inadvertently uh, spoke the truth when it said that uh, with federally funded comparative effectiveness research, eventually some uh, treatments will not be (coughs) prescribed. Now, it's worth noting, as, as, as Shannon did, that about one-third of medical spending in the United States, an estimated one-third, produces absolutely nothing in terms of improved health or improved patient satisfaction. It's a total waste. It does nothing for patients. It's a pure income transfer from taxpayers and workers to medical care providers. So if 700 or $800 billion of the $2.5 billion that we're spending on medical care in the United States every year is being wasted, well, gosh, you know, maybe a little rationing would be in order I think the question is, who shall ration? Now, the right insists that it not be the government that does the rationing. They've uh, vociferously opposed uh, this piece, uh, uh, the comparative effectiveness research funding in the stimulus package, because they understand that that is the aim of comparative effectiveness research, or federally funded comparative effectiveness research anyhow, But that is also uh, precisely – their opposition is also precisely why comparative effectiveness research, when funded by the federal government, will fail to have any impact on uh, medical treatment or uh, will fail to ration care. We've been down this road before. If you've never heard of the National Center for Healthcare Technology, if you've never heard of the Council on Healthcare Technology, or maybe you have heard of this, but most of you probably haven't, of the Office of Technology Assessment – These are all three federal agencies that Congress created either in whole or in part to conduct comparative effectiveness research on medical treatments. But what happened in each of these cases was as soon as these agencies produced uh, research that called into question the value of the services provided either by some group of doctors or some uh, medical device manufacturer or, or so forth, the people who make their income providing those services went to their members of Congress and lobbied to have those agencies eliminated. I've been meaning to look this up, but I think that may be the only reason the Congress ever eliminates federal agencies is when they produce what might be useful comparative effectiveness research. Tom Dashel in his book, called this a patient-provider pincer movement, because you have providers who make a living off of this, uh, off of providing these services. You have patients or patient advocacy groups, which are sometimes funded by those uh, by the providers or, or by the uh, others in the industry. Bringing pressure to bear on members of Congress asking them to defund this agency to produce the eff- offensive research, uh, the agency for Healthcare Research and Quality has come up uh, a couple times already. This is a federal agency that conducts that was created um, uh, under the name uh, under a different name to conduct comparative effectiveness research and suggest. Uh, make payment recommendations to Medicare and Medicaid based on that research. As Shannon documents in her book, what happened in 1995 (coughs) was the back surgeons and the medical device manufacturers that made the screws that were being used uh, in the procedures questioned by the, uh, whose value is questioned by this agency lobbied Congress to eliminate um, uh, this agency. The house of representatives voted to eliminate it entirely. The um, excuse me, In the, end, <clears throat> in the end, in nineteen ninety five anyway, its budget was cut by a mere twenty two percent. But its authority to make those payment recommendations to Medicare and Medicaid was were stripped away. And the agency, known as ARC, came under assault again in ni- in sorry in two thousand two, and its continued existence remains precarious. So the history of um, of comparative effectiveness research suggests that whatever uh, compa- whatever research is produced by this billion dollars in the stimulus package is going to have no effect whatsoever on medical practice. So contrary to the right's fears, this money, this this research is not going to lead to government rationing. If it is any guide, it won't lead to any rationing at all. And yet the left, by God, they they throw this. They want want to throw another billion dollars at comparative effectiveness research, thinking like Charlie Brown that this is the time that they're going to kick that football. But it's not the only the left. I would argue that looks uh, that looks bad here. Conservatives couch their opposition to compar- comparative effectiveness research in terms of limiting government, limiting the size and scope of government. When in fact, by uh, by preventing the government from rationing care, they are actually ensuring that the government will spend more money on low value medical services. Now, what about the economists? <coughs> We may not get all the way through the economists. It turns out that the lack of comparative effectiveness research is not so much an example of market failure as of government failure. Economists will tell you that that this research is a public good. Markets will therefore underproduce it as a result of the free rider problem. If you can't collect money from everyone who uses the research, and information has that characteristic, then it's hard to produce as much research as society would value. So some will say that economic theory argues that government should provide that research. But in fact, economic theory does not say that. Economic theory suge- suggests that government provision may increase efficiency, but it no more suggests that government should provide comparative effectiveness research than economic than nuclear physics suggests that government uh, should build nuclear weapons. <coughs> in fact... Comparative effectiveness research deviates enough from the classic definition of a public good and markets have enough strategies for overcoming the public good problem that it's an open question whether, even in theory, uh, government-provided comparative effectiveness research would improve welfare. Scott spoke uh, to some extent about the private uh, entities that are already conducting these sorts of research. Blue Cross Blue Shield has its Technology Assessment Advisory Committee or Commission, I think it's called – uh, there's an organization called the HMO Network. There's a Cochrane collaboration that uh, uh, conducts uh, research, mostly synthesis syntheses of existing research. But markets have another way of producing comparative effectiveness research, and that is through a certain type of health plan known as a prepaid group practice. These You know these plans as uh, Kaiser Permanente or Group Health Cooperative. In 2005, Kaiser Permanente boasted that it had over 2,000 <laughs> research projects ongoing, and these are not just reviews of existing literature, these syntheses that Scott was discussing. Some of these are, uh, or these, these prepaid group practices have the ability because they have uh, their, their own patient population and because all the doctors work for the same organization, they have the ability to do prospective, randomized, controlled trials where you generate the new knowledge that Scott was talking about about what works and what does not. Now, in fact... <coughs> Kaiser's abilities in this area are so, are so um, established that the FDA turned to Kaiser when it was trying, trying to establish whether Viox was killing people. And at the same time, when this research is conducted by a prepaid group practice like Kaiser, it avoids much of the perception of bias when that research is conducted by the people who produce the very products that are being tested. So why don't we have more comparative effectiveness research being produced by the private sector? Well, it's a story of government failure. On the one hand, government suppresses the demand for this research. Stanford's University health economist Alan Antovin estimates that only 5% of the insured workforce can both choose their own health plan and reap the full financial benefit from choosing economically. So since only 5% of American workers can hope to see any benefit from choosing a health plan that generates or uses comparative effectiveness research. They do not demand those plans. They resist being put into those plans by their employers. And so fewer plans employ or generate that uh, that research. At the same time, government suppresses the supply of uh, comparative effectiveness research by creating barriers to entry for these very prepaid group practices or, or these integrated prepaid group plans. State regulations, such as clinician licensing, insurance regulation, corporate practice of medicine laws, all often enacted at the behest of the physician lobby, all pre- present unique barriers to entry for these prepaid group practices. That's why it's very, you'll find these plans like Kaiser only in certain states. It's very hard for them to spread into other states. But at the same time, the federal government discourages uh, or, or through the uh, tax break for employer-sponsored insurance, the, uh, the Medicare and Medicaid programs encourages fee-for-service payment over the payment sh- schemes used in prepaid group practices, which further uh, <coughs> uh, makes it difficult for these plans to grow and uh, provide more of this research. So history suggests that this $1 billion that we're about to spend on comparative effectiveness research will come to nothing. Ten years from now, my guess is that we'll be right back here bemoaning the lack of comparative effectiveness research and how we don't use the research that exists. A better approach, I think, is the approach that we should have been taking all along, which is to let workers and seniors control their health care dollars and their, and choose their own health plan, which will, re- which will generate demand for comparative effectiveness research if patients can reap uh, some of the savings. At the same time, we should be deregulating clinicians and insurance plans so that these uh, prepaid group practices, which are engines of comparative eff- effectiveness research, can cover more patients, more willing patients in more states, and generate and use more of this research. So thank you very much. Um, we'll, open the, uh, f- we'll open the floor to questions from the audience right now. I'll ask you to please wait for the microphone to get to you and then state your name and affiliation and please make sure that you are actually asking a question and a very brief question or else I will um, uh, cut you off and ask you to uh, get to the point. So. Can,
1: I, can I take the speaker's prerogative here as the first speaker sure. just, to, just to make a comment? One is, is the term rationing is – we should have a definition for rationing. Rationing is not saying, no, you can't have something no matter what it is. Rationing is saying you can't have something because you're too old or because it's too expensive. You can't have something that could benefit you, but you can't because somebody doesn't want to pay for it or you don't fit the age criteria. So the idea that rationing, you know, giving harmful care is rationing, is the same as rationing for care that could be beneficial, really is not – we need to agree that that's not really rationing. So what you're saying really is telling people, no, we're not going to give that to you because it actually doesn't help you or it harms you or it's not as good as an alternative treatment.
0: Well, I think that – Rationing is – the definition that I would use, and I think this is the definition that economists use, is rationing is choosing uh, to spend resources on one thing instead of another thing. And so I I, I tried to suggest in my remarks that I'm not opposed to rationing. Saying you're opposed to rationing is like saying you're opposed to gravity. It's inevitable and you can't avoid it. But I think that what concerns people is the idea of third-party rationing or more precisely government making that decision uh, for – individual patients that you will not get this treatment that you think might benefit you. And it's not, and I don't think the government will always, if government were to ration care, it would always make the wrong decision. I think that uh, if government made these decisions based on large randomized controlled trials, we would probably eliminate a lot of wasteful care. But the problem, even with a large reliable trial like that is that you've got, is that they report the average effect of a treatment And there are always outliers in terms of either physiology. You
1: cannot predict ahead of time. True,
0: true. But but there are always outliers either in terms of physiology or in terms of patient preferences. And so uh, that's one of the reasons I would argue that that we're better off letting patients make their own rationing decisions, mainly by choosing their own health plan, according to... What they know about their own their own preferences and why they might and other reasons that they might deviate from the average patient that those are some of the factors that get lost if the government is making these decisions uh, for um, for patients rather than letting them make those decisions themselves.
2: Michael brings up an interesting point I think we lose sight of, which is that people don 't just choose treatments based on efficacy, even people facing <laughs> catastrophic Uh, uh, illnesses don't just choose treatments based on efficacy. Sometimes they choose treatments based on uh, convenience. Sometimes they choose it based on side effect profile. Uh, Sometimes they choose it based on what's easily accessible to them. There's all kinds of reasons patients make um, uh, choices about treatments. I've seen a lot of cancer patients forego the most robust therapy because they were uh, reluctant to... um, Uh, put themselves in in risk of a certain side effect. You know, some patients worry about cardiomyopathy more than they worry about uh, peripheral neuropathy, uh, two common side effects from different chemotherapy regimens. So, you know, you do take that level of discretion away, and that level of discretion, uh, you know, guides a lot of decision-making. So simply making decisions based on uh, outcomes and costs, which is presumably what the it here would do, takes away an awful lot of discretion that patients make decisions on.
1: Well, we can we can talk about that this this whole issue forever and not give people a chance to to ask questions.
0: I think there's one on the aisle, sir.
3: Uh, Jared favoli Dow Jones. This is a question uh, for Doctor Gottlieb. I was wondering if you could explain or clarify um, how you think the FDA could, I guess, encourage comparative effectiveness research or allow it to be to be used.
2: Well, I think I think the reality is a lot of the comparative trials that. Could get done aren't going to lead to um, efficacy claims on labels. You're not going to be able to get the results into labeling because to do a study that would satisfy the FDA's labeling c- requirements is a very high hurdle and very expensive trial. You know, literally hundreds of millions of dollars. And you don't need to you don't need to um, take my word for it. You could look at two public studies, Katie and Allhat, which were comparative trials looking at different uh, treatments that cost on order of that that amount. I think if a trial is done rigorously and you can you can you can basically delineate in guidance documents. So the FDA could put out a guidance document that lays out criteria. It says if a trial is done, you know, to these specifications, um, but we determine that it's not rigorous enough to base a labeling change on, we're not gonna we're not gonna say that the company can make claims in, in advertising or to doctors and we're not gonna put this information into labeling. Um, as a matter of enforcement discretion, we think as a public health Matter Um, In the promotion of public health good, the company should be able to discuss the results of this trial with P&T committees. You can list whoever you want, you know, uh, major planned pharmacy and therapeutic committees in the example of drugs, Medicare, Medicaid, state formularies any kind of authoritative group that's making uh, a purchasing decision for a large cohort of people, we think that the company should be able to discuss the results of this study with, with that group. And I think that there's enough of an incentive for companies to go into those discussions armed with research that they would do more studies. Um, but since the only standard by which they can do a study now and make any use of it is what they can get into the label, a lot of studies don't get done.
1: But there's, there's one problem with that, that model. Um, The Katie study, for example, basically found that the older antipsychotics were, um, that the new atypical antipsychotics and the older antipsychotics were basically equivalent in efficacy. And they also had different, they had side effects, but they had sort of a different set of side effects. So you could choose your poison. You could get tardive dyskinesia in the old antipsychotics, or you could get, um, type 2 rapidly progressing type 2 diabetes. And it turns out the newer antipsychotics also cause tardive dyskinesia. That's coming out. So what company with a branded drug is going to go in to one of these clinical guidelines meetings and say, oh, by the way, our drug you know, has just as many side effects as this older, cheaper drug? They're just different side effects.
2: Well, two points. First of all, the, the, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say the Katie study concluded that. The, Katie, the results of the Katie study, when it came out, were interpreted that way, and the press release the NIH put out said that. Um, but I think when Katie's been subject to a lot of review and subsequent research has come along, people reach different conclusions, and I think that's why the that's why Katie hasn't really had an impact on clinical practice. If you try to measure what impact Katie has had on on clinical practice, it's been negligible, uh, if any. And, and same with all have, for that matter. Uh, New York Times did a good story. That's
1: because about marketing this. pressure. You,
2: I, I don't think you can describe it all to marketing, but I know that's th- what the critics do. Um, you know, there were problems with, Kate, Katie, the way patients were randomized to different groups. They weren't followed long enough for the problems with the atypical antipsychotics to become fully manifest. Tardive dyskinesia is an awful uh, side effect that, that's irreversible once once it, you succumb to it. But setting that aside for the moment, um, I don't think that putting out a guidance document in this way is going to be a panacea. It's not going to get at every single question that, that, that we can identify in terms of the important comparative questions in clinical practice but it will address some of them you know it's not going to it's not going to resolve the issues where you have a lot of different products all competing in a marketplace like the examples that uh, Gail Walensky and Sean use you know you're not going to be able to get a company to sponsor that kind of trial and that's why i think there is a role for for NIH to sponsor some of this research but certainly on the technology versus technology questions where you especially where you have uh, a price differential where you have you know, uh formulary steering patients towards a generic alternative, there is an incentive for the sponsors to do that kind of research. And I think you'd see more of it. It's not a panacea. I think we'll address the issues on the margins.
0: I would add only, I think we already have a safe harbor for that. It's called the First Amendment. And it would be nice if, if, uh, well, if, if, if that were, if the courts were to enforce that when it came to medical speech by uh, pharmaceutical companies. Do we have other questions? Um, Professor Book first and then down here.
3: Thank you. Uh, I want to ask a question about the fearmongering uh, as as a means of opposition here. When you have a book that came out by uh, Tom Daschle and Jean Lambru saying that comparative effectiveness should be used to deny payment for 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 non you know for less effective, less cost-effective treatments in federally funded programs and that that's the first stage and the next step is to is to uh, deny tax deductibility to private insurance plans that pay for an unapproved treatment or a a less cost-effective treatment. And when you have the uh, Oregon Medicaid program sending out letters to cancer patients saying, we've determined that treating you is not cost-effective, but we will pay for your assisted suicide. Why is this fear-mongering as opposed to being afraid of something that's actually being proposed?
1: Uh, the Medicaid did not do that.
3: They, they did not. We've got the letters. We've got, people, got the names. We've got the patients.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I've looked into that, and it's, it's not particularly well documented. So, the, but, but I understand your question. Um, why is it fear, not fear-mongering to do, to do what they're doing? Um, I think this, this idea that a government should pay for all medical care that a physician says is going to be good for you forgets how much physicians don't know about what really is going to be good for you, A, how much harm medicine really does. I mean, if we really looked at, at error rates from hospitalizations that aren't necessary, if you look at, um, at adverse drug events, if you look at all kinds of things, medicine is not a, a win-win. More of it is not win-win. So the idea that having the government say, no, we're not going to pay for something that actually you know, doesn't really help patients why is that a bad thing? Why is that saying... The you may not be the average patient, the physician might be able to use professional judgment. Right. And that's assuming that the physician can use professional judgment and can tell the difference between one, which, which patient is going to be helped and which patient is going to be harmed, and they can't a lot of the time. So... It, so why do we have
0: well, No, we do have physicians. Th- we,
1: physicians know a lot, is, but the fact is they still don't know a lot.
0: And this is this is largely the question I think that we already covered. We've gotten back to there now. Did you have a question, sir?
4: Just a general question. My name is Todd Wiggins. I live in D.C. I have a question about the um, re- the Canadian system relative to the FDA or the U.S. Uh, research system. Uh, I hadn't heard that topic brought up, but do you have
1: any hypothesis as to whether we can learn anything or we've adopted any of these or should be adopting any of the methods of the Canadian research system relative to our own or, or revering in, in certain directions uh, in, in recent years?
0: I'm not aware of the F, of the uh, Canadian system being a leader in comparative effectiveness research. Or...
1: No, that, I mean, they do a certain amount of comparative effectiveness and basic research like we do, but we fund, I mean, the NIH is, is the biggest single... Um, biomedical research institution in the world it's, it's a gigantic amount of research and dwarfs what other countries are doing but they do some
0: the well, lady in blue please
3: thanks uh, you may have addressed this already but I missed it um, can you, some people are concerned that this board will result, result in reduced treatment options for elderly people like maybe they're too old to get certain expensive treatments can you guys address that please
2: the, the federal board? I, I, look, I think it remains to be seen how this evolves. It's starting as, it's, it's starting as something different than what I think will eventually evolve into. So it's, it's hard to say. I think that it's unlikely. First of all, the federal board is, is I would say, it's hard to believe that someone actually wrote that into legislation um, because this is a board of only political appointees that's going to arbitrate Decisions on how research money gets distributed behind closed doors. If I, if we had tried to do that when I was working in the Bush administration, <laughs> it would have been up before Congress uh, in a congressional hearing. So it's hard to believe that this this went through. I think that ultimately they'll they'll end up having those meetings in public just because of um, the political um, difficulty of doing what they're about to do. But in terms of in terms of rationing, I actually believe that we're unlikely to see. Um, systematic rationing in this country uh, in the same way that you see it in the UK. I think it's going to be far easier politically to aggressively price regulate medical products than to actually ration them. Um, Because if you ration something, you're telling every patient in the country they can't use something. That's politically hard. If you price regulate something, you're basically just sticking it to a single company. Uh, Politically, it's easier. So I think uh, think if it's a choice between rationing and price controls, which is is where the tension is going to be, I think you're going to see price controls in this country. The threat of rationing has to be held out as a tool for trying to extract the price price concessions. But I think that that's where we're heading in this country rather than explicit rationing that you see in Europe. So I don't know if that's fear-mongering or it's not fear-mongering, but that's how I think this eventually politically um, evolves here would He's also distinction. remember we
1: already have rationing in this country. It's co- it's according to whether or not you have health insurance.
2: Okay.
0: I, I I would draw a distinction between, uh, uh, or or I would not draw the distinction that you draw, I guess, Scott, between um, price regulation and and rationing. You did say explicit rationing at the end. I think I I do think that price regulation.
2: Is a form of rationing. Is a
0: form of implicit rationing, because if you lower the price enough, then people will stop providing services, and then people don't get those services anymore. So, again, we can't avoid the 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 rationing issue. Um, I'm not sure that we uh, – rationing by uh, wh- whether people have health insurance is, is one way that we ration health care in the U.S. But I think the greater problem is that we don't we, we don't ration enough, and I think the question becomes – how do we ration and who decides who does?
1: The well, and isn't the point of doing the research is, is, if you're going to have price controls, what you want to do it is in a rational way, not rationing way, but a rational way, where you have price controls on things that are of marginal value, and you you pay full. The, the, I would assume that Medicare would pay full price for <laughs> things that are of high value, and of things that are of lower value or questionable value, it would it would want to change. It would well, put, but Medicare Medicare
0: is the the. the y- y- It's hard to do price controls in a rational way because uh, price controls come from the government, and so they're subject to the political process. And so in the Medicare program, which sets prices for every doctor's visit and everything they do in the doctor's visit and every hospitalization, well, they'll provide a bundled price there. But when they set their prices, um, they do it through a very uh, arcane and complicated process. And those prices are not. I don't know that you could call them rational, and here's, here's one example of why. It will take um, – whereas, whereas market prices will adjust uh, to, uh, to changes in um, supply, demand, innovations that allow doctors to provide services at a lower cost, the prices that uh, the Medicare program fixes for medical services do not. So you have situations where – with ambulatory surgical centers, where instead of spending a night in the hospital, you walk out um, – That day after your procedure, the cost of providing services uh, in an ambulatory surgical center was dropping precipitously, I think, during the 80s and the 1990s. But it took Medicare about 16 years to change the prices to catch up the prices it was paying ambulatory surgical centers to catch up with those um, innovations, those efficiency improvements. So you have Medicare... So it was a very irrational price control. Medicare was overpaying. And I think that happens a lot in the Medicare program. So it, it, it all, I think that it highlight, highlights how price controls are a very uh, blunt and also a very ineffective tool for trying to ration care. I
2: remember, in the U.K., they, they have both... Price controls and rationing, effectively, but they use the they use the National Institutes for Clinical Excellence, which makes determinations on what people can get access to in different clinical settings, as a way to extract the price concessions from the companies by basically saying it's not cost effective in this kind of a setting. If you lower the price, it might reach the threshold. So I think that, that the the rationing tool needs to be held out as sort of an implicit uh, threat if you're going to try to extract price concessions. But if you look at the schemes that are being talked about right now, so for example, you're going to see a bill proposed in the fall to try to price control the so-called single-source drugs on the Part D formulary, cancer drugs, other other, other specialty drugs, without a way to restrict access to those drugs, all you're doing, if you're the Secretary of Health and Human Services or the, or the head of CMS under that kind of scheme, is basically browbeating the company publicly to lower its price. If you don't have a way to restrict access to the drug, you can't get a concession from the company other than to embarrass them. So all of those kinds of tools to try to regulate price, which is, I think, where we're heading in this country, are predicated on the ability to restrict access.
0: There's a question in the back.
3: Hi, good afternoon. My name is Dr. Nayer. I am a rheumatologist at George Washington University, and I am uh, very grateful to you all for this debate. My question to you is, uh, where do physicians fit in to the CER debate? We hear a lot about regulation. We hear all, a lot about cost containment. But as a practicing rheumatologist who takes care of the elderly and gives very expensive biologics that improve quality of life tenfold, I'm, I'm really curious to see where are the doctors in this debate and where can they weigh in? you know, the pros and the cons into the Doctor?
2: Well, look, I think there's been a watershed change in the approach of the federal agencies to to physicians generally, where there's now a widespread um, appreciation inside these agencies that part of their mandate is to regulate aspects of the practice of medicine. So you see FDA doing it under the guise of risk management plans, which are rules attached to drugs at the time of approval in terms of what physicians can and can't do in prescribing a certain drug, um, you're seeing CMS become much more prescriptive in its payment decisions um, to actually guide what physicians do in their clinical practice. Now, if you talk to the agencies, and you know they, they basically acknowledge that they, they have a, a responsibility to regulate aspects of the practice of medicine. FDA says, well, doctors don't read drug labels. We can't trust them to read drug labels. They're overly influenced by marketing. Therefore, we need to make sure they, quote, do the Right thing um, when they prescribe a drug, and I say, "quote Do the right thing," because it was a, a statement put to me by a very senior drug official when I was there. At Medicare, they cite the uh, data on practice variation, and they say this this can't be good medical practice, if there's so much variation across the country, we need to use our payment tools to try to bring more um, homogeneity to how doctors are practicing medicine around what we think are good uh, clinical guidelines. So the reality is that you you have seen a change in the environment. Um, 15, 20 years ago, it would never have existed inside these agencies. They would have been very circumspect about regulating aspects of medical practice to one where now they feel it's actually part of their mission, that the professional societies haven't stepped in to do a good enough job to regulate medical practice. The licensing boards haven't done it. Um, and so therefore, the federal government and these agencies need to take on that responsibility. So to ask the question where physicians fit in, I think they fit in less and less, frankly. Um, and when I when I personally was concerned about the imposition of risk management plans and, and the broadening of that policy when I was at uh, FDA, the AMA, sure, they came in and they expressed their concerns about that, but they didn't say anything publicly, and they didn't say anything publicly probably because they were negotiating the SGR at the time and their own reimbursement, and so they could only pick one fight at a time.
1: I think physicians have a really important role to play here, but um, they, I think that they need to think less of um, themselves often as the beleaguered ones and and start leading in ways that they aren't yet doing which is to to ask that their professional societies in fact do become more independent from the drug industry and that their professional societies start using evidence in a way that is more evidence based and that they not think of themselves as being individual practitioners that don't they don't want anybody looking over their shoulder i mean we know that the places that produce the best um, care, the best quality of care, some of the best outcomes for lower costs. They're more efficient places. They um, have higher patient satisfaction. They're doing a better job. Are these organized group practices? And, and many physicians, um, at least this, this was true of a generation ago, um, have really resisted the idea that they, that they work in teams And I think it's increasingly important that physicians recognize that um, there is a better way to do things and that, that we can't be, everybody can't be Marcus Welby anymore, and that evidence is absolutely critical to doing a really good job. But, and some of the physician societies have stepped up to this plate, but more of them need to do so.
2: I would agree with Shannon. I think the medical professional societies need to step in and become much more aggressive in regulating aspects of medical practice than what they've done. I think it's really a failure of organized medicine to behave as a profession. And If you think of what the tenets of a profession are, at least one of the central tenets of a profession is that it's self-regulatory, uh, that, that you know, they engage in self-regulation. I think medicine... Uh, got lazy at doing that. And so there is an opportunity to to reclaim some of this ground. I feel a lot of it's been lost inside the agencies because the attitude inside the agencies have changed um, and how they view their role to organize medicine has changed. And so it's a little bit of an uphill battle for the doctors at this point.
0: On the aisle.
4: I'm Lens Welling. I'm a Robert Wood Johnson fellow. How do you juxtapose the uh, issues of comparative effectiveness, which tends to put people into groups and make conclusions about how an individual is going to be treated. It has to be that way. Doctors treat patients one at a time. And personalized medicine and genomics, which is tending to put people in groups that we never even dreamed of before. Uh, I'll, Usual reaction
3: I get.
1: I'll take that one. Um, the, the idea that, that personalized genomics is right around the corner, has, I think, has been oversold. I think that we have a few really shiny examples of how um, genomics does make a difference in how you make decisions about how to treat a patient. Uh, Herceptin being one of them, uh, there there are a few other examples. But we don't yet know enough to really and truly personalize medicine. So the best we have are these randomized trials, which, yes, there is variation in a population within a trial, but... Um, you can get a pretty good idea about what the risks and benefits and how to weigh them are, and there are always risks and benefits. there's risks to doing something, there's risk to not doing something. there's risk to doing this versus risk to doing that. Well, there, there are all kinds of, of levels of evidence, and we consider the highest level of course being the randomized the randomized trial. But there's all kinds of evidence that you can get from other things. Kaiser gets a great deal of information
4: <laughs> Sure. And that's
1: Well, give an example of what you mean.
4: There are a whole variety of circumstances where epidemiology has led us to one conclusion. For example, the use of antioxidants uh, to prevent cardiovascular disease and cancer, and every clinical trial has shown either no effect or a detrimental effect. We can argue whether or not the Women's Health Initiative and uh, estrogen replacement is is an example of that as well. But the, I, I guess the... <coughs> question, just to amplify on, on Len's point, is how one presumes to use the data. I would hope that nobody on the panel would argue against collecting new information. The issue is, how does one choose to use that information? And if, in fact, we use it as we have in the past, which is to inform medical decision-making, that doesn't necessarily need to be proscriptive. It's not forced. It's information that's out there that everyone can act on. Is there a problem? And, with that? and yet, and yet, no one does.
0: So I mean, far, it doesn't have much of an effect.
1: On. And in part, and
0: why because, is that?
1: Well, one reason is when the information goes counter to the payment incentives. Physicians often will ignore what the evidence says. I mean, we've it, it took five randomized trials of elective of the the use of elective stents for interventional cardiologists to finally start changing the way they were practicing, and cardiologists sending the patient off to the interventional cardiologist. So
4: you started off the, the day by saying that most medical care is driven by physician preference. It's also driven by patient preference. Some of it, yeah. how does How does one take information, which is really all that comparative effectiveness research is providing, and translate it to both the patient and the physician for rational decision-making? Uh, well, I'll I think ahead. the. Oh, go ahead.
0: Sorry. I think the only way to do that is to p- make sure all the information is presented there at the table, and they have, uh, and all the incentives to use that information wisely is represent are represented there. And the only way to do that is by leaving the choice of uh, of of health plan and physician in the hands of the the patient, and leaving uh, the money in their hands so that they have the financial incentive to uh, To pay attention to the evidence and to avoid treatment that it's going to benefit them much, or may even harm them. Uh, so, and and I, I, you take away either of those things, and all of a sudden we're not using the evidence anymore, or we're not even generating the evidence.
2: You know, it's done right now in the private sector through things or, like, or the truth, things like tiering and copays, where patients are exposed to uh, you know, uh, an economic component of their incrementally more expensive choices relative to what people think is the appropriate standard or 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 good care in, in different clinical settings. You face a higher copay if you opt for a branded drug over a generic where a good generic is available. The problem with that construct applied to Medicare uh, is that Medicare is not there's not that discretion built into Medicare. Medicare is sort of a binary payer. They either decide to reimburse something or they don't. So if Medicare starts making decisions on the basis of this information, it's not going to be through a tiered formulary or through copays on, you know, if you choose option B over option A, it's going to be through, you know, we don't pay for that because we've determined it's not...
0: Can't Medicare do it that way? And that's the question: Why can't it?
2: Well, when you, it's, it's, that, it's that's Medicare, politically unpopular on the on the left. Very it's, it's because
0: popular. it's because Medicare has been captured. Medicare has effectively been captured by the providers who make their incomes off of the program, mm-hmm. and that is why Medicare is an ineffective tool for uh, for using this research and, and you know actually, I would argue also have, helps to discourage it.
2: We've had this discussion in many different contexts, and and that's very hard. Um, it's very politically unpopular to have a Medicare program that exposes. Patients to uh, economic component of their choice on an incrementally more expensive technology. Um, it, you know, bring it up with the Democratic Caucus. I, I have many times. It's
0: well, there there have been reforms though, and 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 the the bipartisan commission of ninety seven or whatever it was the the, the Brofrist two proposal. These uh, I, these proposals for premium support do just that. They don't do it at, at the or. They may not do it at the moment uh, that a treatment is being considered, but they uh, make the patient responsible for the uh, incremental cost of more expensive treatments when they choose their health plans. By giving them the choice of signing up for a health plan that covers more um, relatively cost-ineffective treatments, let's say. Mm
1: -hmm. Well, you know, the the alternative is is probably going to be fairly unpopular as well, which is first bankrupting the federal government and then bankrupting the entire economy because healthcare care is oh it
0: seems very popular anymore. that seems like a very popular option.
1: <laughs> but um, I, I think it's also important to make a distinction between two different kinds of care. so there's there's some care where the patient can have a fair amount of choice in in what happens, and that's elective surgeries, uh, elective tests, elective any kind of elective procedure and drugs. Um, many kinds of drugs. The patient should have an enormous amount of power over deciding what they do and they don't do, but they need to be informed, and they're not very well informed. Under standard practice right now, you know, my husband goes in and the doctor says, okay, time for your PSA test. And that's his informed consent. And it's not a good way for him to be able to choose whether or not he likes the (coughs) extreme effects of getting a PSA test or not. So... There's elective things where patients should have an enormous amount of input, and then there are things where patients cannot have a lot of input. When you hospitalize a very, very sick patient, and there are many, many things going on, it's hard to imagine that we're going to inform the patient or, or his or her family adequately to make the decision, are we going to do a vena cava filter? Are we going to put the patient in the ICU? Are we going to use a swan gen catheter? Are we going to do you know, this drug or that drug? So... Those kinds of decisions have to be in the hands of physicians, and physicians are not always using the evidence um, that it exists correctly, and they are not. Um, and, and when the evidence doesn't exist, you can't expect them to necessarily be able to make the right choice. So. There have to be other kinds of ways of getting physicians to make the right choice, and peer pressure is one of those ways, especially in organized systems.
2: Uh, you know, just getting back to your question, how is this going to be used? And, and obviously no, none of us here disagree about the, uh, the public health benefits of, of a system that would incentivize more of this information generation, Is questions of how we go about doing it. I think how it's going to get used is going to evolve over time. And if this is successful, if you, if you do have an entity grow up that does this, that has independent stature and credibility... Um, it will inevitably become a a binding part of Medicare's decision-making process. I think it's inevitable. I think everyone who's honest will admit to that. I don't know what your view is on it, but I think people will readily admit to that. Um, The question is, will it grow up into an entity that has that independent stature? The the history of this is that CMS has tried to embed its own clinical judgment in the context of its coverage decisions on many occasions, and every single time it's tried to do it, it has fumbled, uh, or it's had its authority stripped away by Congress. And I think people who feel that that CMS and Medicare needs to become a more active clinical decision-maker in the context of its coverage decisions in the name of cost containment come to the recognition that CMS is never going to get there. And the only way to have that kind of construct in the United States is to take it outside CMS and do it somewhere else. And I think this is an effort to do that. And I don't know if that's fear-mongering. I don't know if it really matters if it's fear-mongering because the reality is we lost this debate. Um, The people who, uh, you know, worry about this – lost it in legislation. It passed. It's in the President's budget. A much broader bill will pass in the fall. Um, So this uh, now I think we're debating how to tinker around the edges on this to try to guide it in a more useful direction for clinical practice.
0: I would just add that each of the uh, now deceased um, federal comparative effectiveness agencies that litter the graveyards here in Washington, (laughs) D.C. were also enacted into law, and the debate was over. So it remains to be seen exactly what comes of this effort. So I don't see any more hands up, so I will thank you all for for joining us and talk to you upstairs. Thanks.